Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel went to Ramah. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, see an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let the Lord, let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who's with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, New Albany. Good morning, New Albany. All right, so good to be over here in Indiana again. Uh, the last time I drove to Indiana, I was speeding. They caught me. They, they ain't supposed to catch me. All right, so um, that's all settled. They gave me a warning, so praise God for that. I, I love Indiana. I love you guys. All right, um, so we are in our second installment. Well, first, let me let you know who I am before I start screaming at you. Uh, I am James Westbrook. I'm one of the pastors at Midtown. Uh, Midtown is in the house. And so if you're visiting with us, um, I'm from Midtown. They said, I'm never coming back. They got screaming at me. You can come back. They're nice here. All right. So uh, today we're going to talk about the counter-cultural caller. The counter-cultural caller. Uh, and so this is going to be in the, the second installment in our series in the life of David. David, the king of Israel, the second king of Israel, very complex and interesting character, but a man that is worth talking about this morning. We can learn a lot from his life. So as we talk about calling today, as, we, as we're looking at that, uh, we're going to learn something very, very important for our own lives. Now, growing up, I'm going to let you know that I was not always the, the physical physique that I, I am now, whether good or bad, whatever I am now, I wasn't always like this. Uh, growing up, they used to call me Bony Tony. <clears throat> they used to call me Starving Marvin. 
Uh, that means that I was skinny. And so when it came to my favorite sport growing up, kickball, I was not always at the top of the list because nobody wanted somebody with skinny legs to be kicking that ball. You know, they want to drive that thing. So they wanted people with nice calves. And if you got big calves in there, I want you to wear pants for the rest of your life. I don't want to see them. Like God is still doing some stuff with me in my heart. I still got those skinny legs. But, but, but the point is, is that, that, that there is a, uh, the, what I'm trying to illustrate here at least is that there is a cultural way. There was a way in which they, they uh, assess value to who should be playing on the kickball team. And when it comes to people in our life, we have the same, too often have the same mentality in terms of how we, we appreciate people or how we look at people or even how we look at ourselves in our own lives, in our own faiths. We, we look at, Lord, I, I don't have what I think I should have to be loved by you. And I hope this morning that we are encouraged by the fact that God has a different set of lenses that he's looking at when he looks at people and when he calls people into his service. Amen? And so we're going to look at what God is, is, um, is looking at and, and what he values. And my hope is, is that we make an adjustment in our value system as to how we look at people. So before we do that, let's go ahead and go to the Father for some help through prayer. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Lord, you birth a new people through your word. Lord, you bring people to life in you through your word. Lord, would you give new life right now in situations and circumstances in life that seem dead? Lord, would you speak life? Lord, to anyone, Lord, that that is not in you, that does not know you and come to know Jesus as their own personal Lord and Savior, we pray, Lord, life with them, life for them through your word. And Lord, would you take this broken vessel to preach your word this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so if you're following along with me in your bulletins, we're just going to jump right into it. Our first point in looking at What's going on in this next chapter of our, um, of, um, of our series in chapter 16? The first thing I want us to see is that God rejects what culture values. God rejects what culture values. We're going to see that through verses 6 through 10. And that's, uh, let's start. It says that when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, Look, man, the Lord has not chosen these. The first thing I want us to see is that, listen, God, uh, he has this way of choosing people in such a way that it negates, that it contradicts cultural values. Well, you have learned last week that for the past 27 years, King Saul, the first king of Israel, has just been removed as king. Though he still sits in its sea, he has been removed from Israel as their king. And now you have Samuel just like, yo, that was my boy. That was my dude. That was my guy. And he's been removed and he's now remorsing and he's remorseful. And, and God has to come to him and say that, Samuel, 
How long are you going to sit here crying about what I did for, to my people, to my servant, to, to, uh, to my situation? This is my, it belongs to me. It's up to me. I removed him. How long are you going to mourn this loss? I mean, that, that's just like me when I'm a LeBron James fan, man. When the Cleveland lost, like, brother, it takes me about two weeks to recalibrate. People that say California's Oakland, James, and I'm about to go to Oakland. And like, brother, you, you, you got you to recalibrate. You got to get past this. You know, some of us got to get past McGregor. Uh-oh. I, I didn't miss somebody in here. Okay. All right, let me be quiet. Listen, it says, that, listen, you got to recalibrate. You got to move past. Because I have, my, I have uh, business uh, due, and I need you to get up, and I need you to go and choose the next king. So he tells Samuel, go down to Bethlehem. The new king is there, and go to Jesse. Uh, Jesse was a businessman. He owned sheep. He says, go down there, and that's where you're going to find your king, the new king. And so as we're looking at this, we learn from this text here is that, okay, listen, you're gonna, what's, what's about to happen is going to show quite evidently that God does not value the same stuff that we value. As a matter of fact, God, uh, uh, the people that we would typically throw away, that's the person that God is looking at most intently. And so with that, we see the first principle here that I wanted to see is that culture values the scene. Culture values the scene, which means culture values the outward the thing that is most evident, the thing that seems that, that, uh, that's right in front of us, that's what culture values. And it has to look the right way. It has to smell the right way. It has to come off the right way. He says, that's what culture values. In verse 6, he says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He's looking at Eliab. He's looking at the way that Eliab is set up. He's looking at the way that Eliab is formed. And he said that, man, this has got to be the God. He's the eldest of them. His brother is looking good, and he's about to make the same mistake that the Israelites made when they chose Saul. He says, you're about to make the same mistake when you sit down and you're getting ready to watch this, this, uh, this procession. You're about to make the same mistake. What, was the mistake. what mistake was that? In chapter 9, uh, earlier in this, in this book, you have in verse 2, Saul. What did they see in Saul. Saul was a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. It says that from his shoulders and up, he was the, uh, the taller, he was taller than any of the people. This brother was GQ. He was looking good. He belonged on the, the, the front of the, the world's sexiest man. I'm sorry I used that word, but this is what this brother, I'm just trying to contextualize it for you. It says that this is what this brother is, is, this is where he belongs. He's looking good, and that's why they chose him. They didn't get a character reference, didn't ask for, 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 for a resume, nothing. He said that he looked the part, and he should play the part. He says, you about, to have, you about to do something. His brother, he had the whole 20-year plan mapped out for his life, success. He said, 20-year plan? I've heard the five-year plan. Yeah, he had it all mapped out. He looked successful. He seemed successful. He seemed to be exactly what they wanted him to be. And he's getting ready to let's make the same mistake in looking at Eliab. Eliab looked good. He's tall. He looks good. It's something that we have to understand here culturally. In the ancient Near Eastern world, um, the, the king was looked upon as a viceroy for the god or for the gods. So whether that be Israel for God, one god, or whether that be the surrounding culture, the king was a living statue of God. 
And so essentially, wherever you have these statues erected of God, it was in the image of the king. And so if I'm going to choose a king, he can't be looking all toe up and busted. He need to look good. That's what they're looking at. And God is making a point to this theology, and he's speaking to this theology that, listen, I am not going to be contained by the physical, for I am the one and true living God, and I am invisible, and you cannot capture my, my, uh, my appearances, my characteristics into a statue, into a person. I don't care who you look at, that person does not represent me totally or accurately unless they are a servant of me, unless there is something that you're seeing that we're going to talk about a little later. And so he says that, but so, so one by one, he is now starting to say, okay, Lord, I now see that it cannot be according to physical appearance. It cannot be according to <clears throat> what the world values. <clears throat> and this is so important. It's so important because in our churches today, we believe that we got to look a certain way, act a certain way. There are people, there may be someone even in this room that believes that they cannot become a Christian until they look a certain way. That is not the gospel, friend. The Lord doesn't need you to fix yourself up. The Lord doesn't need you looking a certain way. The Lord doesn't need you acting a certain way. The Lord just wants you. And he says, come on in. I'll do the rest. Let me do my stuff. You don't have to look a certain way because it's not the outside that God is looking for. The most important thing that you need and that I need is going to be on the inside. Only God can do that work. Come on in. One by one, he begins to eliminate and say, no, not you. No, I'm now looking through the spirit. I'm now looking through a spiritual lens, not, no longer through a natural lens. I'm now looking at people. I'm now looking at your sons in the way that I should with a, with a gospel saturation or with a God saturation. One by one, no, that, you're not it. This is not it. This is not it. This is not who they are. Listen, culture is going to be a loud voice in your heads. Culture is going to tell you who you should value. Culture is going to tell you what you should value. Culture is going to tell you what that value looks like physically. They're going to tell you and me over and over again. This is the person that represents you. This is the person that should represent you. And then we fight with one another. Quite, it's really simple. It's a tactic of the enemy for the Christian to keep us divided all the time, fighting amongst one another. Culture values, uh, I want us to see the list of what culture values. See, the culture says that, listen, if you're going to be, if you should be recognized, if you're good, and, 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 if, and if someone should be paying attention and listening to you, this is what you should have. And I want to see how God rejects what culture values. He says that, one, listen, the culture says that, listen, you should be proud and accomplished. If you accomplish anything, if you're a director of this, you're a manager of that, if, you are, if you're good at this, if you got your own business in that, if you got some type of accolade or some type of accomplishment, you need to act the part. You need to look a certain way. You need to walk a certain way. You need to hold your coffee a certain way. You need to talk to me. Be quick. I don't have time. Time is money. Money is time. And move fast. You need to do something in such a way that you're living up to the hype of your own accomplishments. That's what culture says. But God said that, listen, James 4, 6, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I'm literally opposing that. God opposes our pride. It stinks in the nostrils of God, the scripture says, when we begin filling ourselves and believing all the hype and got the choir and the people in the crowds in our own hands. Yeah, you're so great. You're lovely. 
Now, God says, no, 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 no. That's not the disposition that I want. The culture values trust of money and wealth and building your success, your worth, how important you are. It's judged by how much money you got. Now, I'm a church planner. I'm getting ready to go to Oakland, very expensive area in the country. And it's very easy as I'm talking with people to associate value with how much money you got. But I've talked with some people while I'm raising money to say that, brother, I would not trust anything with you, a a dime with you, let alone, you know, asking and requiring money of you. No, 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 no. The God says, no, that's not what I want you putting your trust in. James getting ready to uh, uh, church plant. That's not what I want you to put your trust in, member of New Albany, going through all the financial issues that you may be going in, whether it's building something, whether it's trying to maintain, whether it's paying off bills. That's not what I want you to put your trust in. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says that it will fail you. It will fail you. You build trust in earthly riches. Moth grows on it. It deteriorates. Someone can steal it. Go for the eternal. The world says that, listen, you need to be You need to have value, power, and independence. But God says that, no, I'm looking for the weak person. I'm looking for the person who's dependent, who needs me, who doesn't believe that they can do it all by themselves. The culture says that, no, you should be first. God says that the first should be last, and the last shall be first. The culture says that I value outward beauty, but God says that it was the inner beauty. We see this in 1 Peter 3 and 34. Do we see the upside-down kingdom? Do we see that God works with a whole different way of thinking, a whole different mindset than what the culture values. And this is a beast. This is hard for us to fight. It's hard for me to fight. If I, if I, if I don't play the part or look the part, will they pay attention? They believe in the vision. Will they get behind me? God says, that, listen, I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for something else. And, and this is going to be important with how we choose friends how we choose our mates, how we choose who we date, how we choose um, uh, the, the, the people that we hire, whatever the case is, how do we look at people? That's what it all comes down to. How do you see people? This is something that Samuel was asked to address in his own heart. Am I seeing people the way that I should? Am I looking at these men the way that Yahweh looks at these candidates? Am I looking, am I heeding the spirit Am I seeing people in such a way that the dignity of their being is maintained by applying an honest, sobered, gospel-centered, true perspective? And I guarantee you, the moment we do that, if we do that to every single media outlet, news outlet in this country, there will be no more news. There you go. Just gave it to you. Somebody said, well, wait a minute. What about CNN? What about Fox? I meant what I said. <laughs> All right, so, 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 so the question is, the question that we want to ask ourselves this morning, where is God saying in your life, I reject what you are valuing? What is it in your life right now that it comes to mind, I reject what you're valuing from Monday through Saturday, because you know on Sunday we got it all together. From Monday to Saturday, what are you valuing? That God rejects, and it is an invitation for us to recalibrate and repent and look at, okay, how do I align my value system when it comes to looking at people with God's uh, uh, viewpoint? Our next point I want us to look at is that, listen, 
if, if one is true, then that means the other is true. If God rejects what culture values, that means that God values what culture rejects. That's our next point here. Let's read in verses 11 to 13. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for, he, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which means reddish, intent, and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and uh, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, this is very interesting to me. You have Samuel's uh, this is there, and they're at this barbecue, they're chilling, and they're just looking and assessing people. And, and, and he's listening to the Spirit, and he says, that, Is this everybody? Is, I mean, is this, is this everybody? And you got the father, Jesse, like, I got one more. <laughs> what you want with him? You know, I, you, I, mean, I mean, Jesse, like, you didn't pass up the dream team. So, I mean, you talking about, uh, they, go get David. Go, go, go get him, I guess. We actually don't know whether or not they actually knew why Samuel was there. We don't really know that. The text doesn't tell us that. All, all we know is that the brother steps up, Samuel, they scared that he's about to kill him. He says, I'm not here on no beef. I'm here. I got to choose some people. I got to anoint somebody. They don't know for what. But for whatever it is, he knows that if the prophet, the surrogate king is in town, then that means that he's going to be calling somebody to some great service. And it would not have ever crossed the mind of Jesse that the great service will fall upon the youngest. This is something with that's unlike American culture in several in, in, in many ways. Sometimes it's, it's like it, but but the ancient birth order, particularly in the, the, the middle, uh, the Near East, the ancient birth order said that as you go, as you descend in the birth order, you descend in cultural value. As you descend, and 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 as you are the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth born, as David was then you're pretty insignificant. You're at the bottom of the totem pole. As a matter of fact, when you call a party to meet the sons of Jesse, you stay out and tend to the sheep. So we see a principle right here that God values the unseen. The culture values the seen and what they can see and how it looks and all of that. God values the unseen and literally what he values and who he wants is unseen. He's nowhere to be found. And we learn something about God's character, about his nature. See, God and his economy and how he works things out and how he works in this world, he makes it a point to display the least as his instruments of service. God don't, he doesn't need the most evident. He doesn't need the person that looks the part. He don't need you and I to look like we got it all together. God doesn't need all of that. Why? Because God is concerned with his glory. God is saying that, listen, I would take the person that you threw away. I would take the person that you least expect, and I'm going to show you what I can do. Oh, we all love that's Americans. We, we, we love that, that underdog story. Oh, God love a good underdog story, too. 
See, is Abraham having a baby against biological odds? See, that was the least, which is why he went to Abraham and then did his thing with him. Gideon warring against thousands with just 300 was the least. And that story existed before 300, the Spartan version of that. Oh, we love that film. I love the film and everything, you know, but I'm just like, hey, that existed first. Be with the people of Israel. Or the divine man who immensely suffered and died and resurrected from the grave, that being the means by which we could come to know God our Father. That was the least. God says that that's what he's willing to work with. It is the unseen, it is the lowly things that God values. The lowly things, we are reminded of that. By Paul Brothers and sisters, he says, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. He says, oh, now that you're a Christian, don't get the big head. Oh, I remember where you came from. He says that not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. The things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. He says, Samuel, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's the heart that God is concerned with. Saul did not have the heart of God. Saul did not possess what God was looking for, and he never did. I want you to notice that when Saul is actually anointed king over Israel, it doesn't say that God, God doesn't say that I have made him king over Israel. It actually says a different word. It says he's made prince over Israel. God knew that he would be calling David in. David had to come to age. David wasn't even born yet. and David had to be, become born and become to age in the meanwhile. The most important part of you, the most important part of me does not exist in the fourth, the third and fourth dimension, time and space. The most important part of you and I exists in the fifth dimension. It's the unseen. It's the spiritual makeup. We are embodied souls. We are spiritual beings. And that is true even when we are conducting or even when we are in our relationships with our wives with our friends, with our children, when they are talking to us, when they are communicating their heart to us, what the question we have to always fight to see, what is really being said here? What, what is, the, is it really about the way the toilet paper is shaped and put, is it you know, front, bottom, back? Is it really the fact that you're squeezing the, the, the toothpaste from the bottom versus the middle? Is it, what's really being communicated here? Is it, what is this really about? I suppose that if we listen to the unseen things more and draw that stuff out, we'll begin to see that, no, I don't feel listened to when you do this. I feel neglected when you do that. I, I, I feel afraid, mommy and daddy, when you show such strong disappointment in me. I feel rejected. That's where our existence really is. God is not fooled by the false self 
He's not fooled by the false self. He's not fooled by the image that we put out there that we want people to see. You know, that's the image that we, that, that the Sunday, you know, to get up and, and, and wear the striped shirt with the nice jacket here, hoodie. <laughs> I saw uh, Jonah wear a, a hoodie several times when he preached. I'm like, well, I'm going to wear one too. Or uh, not a hoodie, a, a sweater. sweater. That's not the person that God is concerned with. It's the core person. It is the core person. It is the core person. That's where we find all of those insecurities. That's where we find our narratives. And that's also what explains why we do what we do. It's the core self. See, that's not, God is not, I, I, I love Disney movies. I love, the, you know, we watched one last night. I love Disney movies. I love Disney stories. But even the story of Cinderella, everybody wants the Cinderella, the Cinderella at the ball. All beautiful with the gown and whatnot, shiny with shiny glass slippers, just dancing through the night. I said, no, that's not the Cinderella I'm concerned with. I, I want the Cinderella that's dirty and dusty and hurt and insecure and lonely and always asking, Lord, what, who, who am I? Or am I heard? Or am I seen? Or do you hear me, God? The one that's crying out before him, broken before him, that's the one that he wants. And that's what he wants in his new king. He wants a person after his own heart. We see this mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 13, verse 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. David is broken. David is an adulterer. David is a murderer. David does some stuff, y'all. He does some stuff. But each time he said, Lord, I am a wretched sinner, Lord. Help me. Save me, Lord. Don't take your spirit from me, Lord, please. Whatever you do, don't take your spirit away from me. We read it throughout the Psalms. His heart, his heart, his heart. God says that that's what I want. God wants brokenness. He wants a people that's formed, a new people in his kingdom that has hearts after him, that burn after him, that says that, Lord, I'm not all that good. I need some help here, Lord. This is why Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that have poverty of spirit. Blessed are those that come to the end of themselves and say that I don't have anything to offer. I come with you with empty hands. And that is an invitation for anyone in here that has not come to know him. And that's an invitation for Christians. That Jesus is still saying, come to me broken. See, when we go the distance without talking to God, it's because we believe that we are, we are independent beings and that we don't need him. I imagine that we will pray more we stand with the, the knowledge that we constantly need him, always need him, ever needs him. God wants a broken spirit. It's a broken spirit and a contrite heart. To this I will draw nigh, God says. But we see that God positioned what he values. He, he wants the broken person. He values what the culture rejects, but when he calls us and when he calls his people, and he's certainly calling people now that may not even know him, he's going to do something very particular in your life, though it may not always feel that way. Let's uh, finish up in verses 14 through 23. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. 
And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Y'all, he is still with the sheep. Man, they got anointed, you know, give him a raise or something. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for, the, for he has found favor in my sight. And whatever the, uh, the, excuse me, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hen. So Saul was refreshed and was well. The harmful spirit departed from him. I'm so encouraged by this part of the story as we close. I'm so encouraged by what God does with David. David is not just simply called and anointed for the task. It's David goes on to live, just live this normal life, this ordinary life. Nothing changed outside of him just having more oil on his head. That was the anointing process. David is, is still doing, still with the sheep, but God said, said, David, I have anointed you for something, for a great work. And I'm working behind the scenes, whether you know it or not. This is encouraging to me because it's, all, it's always in those mundane areas of life that we say that, Lord, I have become a Christian. I became a Christian the same age that David was anointed king. I became a Christian at 15 years of age. After over 20-something years, I have, I've had pockets in my life where I said, Lord, are you with me? Lord, is this real in my life? Lord, I've been struggling with some pockets of sin. Lord, what's going on? Are you still with me? But God reassures us this morning that, listen, whether you believe that you're growing with outward expressions of it, whether you feel like you, you are growing with leaps and bounds, whether you feel that you've been struggling with the same thing that you've been struggling with for years, I want you to know something. One, that may be, that, that's an invitation right there, that maybe that's a wound that the Lord can deal with. He provides his church through narrative that you can talk with people about those things that we struggle with for long periods of time. But I also want to tell you that God is faithful to his people and he is at work. God is the cosmic chess player, I like to say. He's at play. He's maneuvering. Listen, Jesus is committed to maturing and mobilizing those he has affectionately called into his service. We're reminded of that through verses like, listen, no one can pluck you from my hand. You are my workmanship. I am not done with you yet. That's layman's terms. I'm still doing a work with you. And we see that through the life of David. How in the world is it that God sends and dispatches his angels to do to cause mental and spiritual and emotional distress to Saul in order to put things into play? 
that he may call David because David could play some instruments. And he said, and this is God's way of maneuvering things. Even when Saul, I mean, even when David is not even aware of it. We don't always feel this way. We don't always feel our growth or feel our Christianity or feel our calledness. It is often that when the countercultural caller calls, are you with me? It's often with, when the countercultural caller calls, the countercultural called don't always feel called. But his promises to us is that when I call you, you are mine. You are with me. Even when you seem stuck in that place, I'm with you. Even when you feel that, Lord, I don't know if we're going to get through this in our marriage. I'm with you. Even when you say that, Lord, I know me. And I'm not worth it. Why you still love me? Why are you still with me? God says that that's exactly where I need you to be. Because that's when I loved you, that while you were yet sinners, I died for you. Let's come to the end of ourselves and realize that God sees us through a whole different set of lenses. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to have the nice cast. You don't. Because that's not why he chose you in the first place. He chose you for his own glory and for his own purposes. But when you had nothing, God was able to do something with you, and he's still able to do something with you. We're reminded of this great love that God has for us by demonstrating his love for us. That when we didn't do anything to deserve deserve it, while we were still dead in our sins, Christ died for us. And every week when we meet, we're reminded of this glorious love, and to whatever extent, to the extent that God shows this love, Or to what extent God shows his love? We know this. We come in contact with this every single week. He died for it. He was tormented and tortured for it. Just to show you, I love you. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks and he broke it. He said that this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat it. Likewise, Jesus took the cup and said that this is my blood, the blood of my new covenant. Take and drink. For as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Brothers and sisters, we have an invitation this morning to sup on the mercies of Christ. Coming to the end of ourselves, knowing that we have nothing. And if you are an unbeliever in this place, if you have not come to know this Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that invitation is for you. He wants you. He loves you. Come to the end of yourself, saying that I cannot run my own life. I am not the master of my own sea and of my own ship. I come to you, Jesus, Son of God. If you're an unbeliever in this place, we ask that you abstain from this meal. But we want to open up fellowship with you to tell you more about this loving Christ. Let's pray.